Hello everybody, welcome to another edition of the Value Line Observer with Val Hughes of the Value Guys. I am a 30-year Wall Street veteran who has gone underground, taken on a secret identity in order to provide my candid views on a handful of stocks out of each week's Value Line Investment Survey. You've seen my face on TV, you've seen me quoted in the news, but my bosses would never allow my unfiltered views on the air, so I've disguised my voice and they'll never know. This week, I look at the April 23rd edition of the Value Line Investment Survey, and I'm just going to tell you now, it's May 2nd, So, but I'm not going to let that deter me. It was, it was a pretty good issue. Um, uh, but before I get to that, a couple of caveats. This show is for entertainment purposes only, um, and secondly, I may have a lot of conflicts of interest. So, you know, I may be buying stocks, I'm suggesting that you sell. I may be selling stocks, I'm suggesting that you buy. So keep that in mind. Third, I may be completely uninformed. And I, again, do not let that deter me. And uh, fourth, most importantly, perhaps, and it's certainly true tonight, I may be heavily drinking. Uh, this is a hobby. It's after work. I'm just relaxing. Sometimes I'm relaxing a little bit too much, over-relaxing. And I'm paging through Value Line, just like I have for many years, and I just talk about it uh, on the show. So uh, for you new listeners, the format is um, I pick three stocks out of that week's Value Line. This week I'm going to look at National, Presto, Hillenbrand, and uh, Wabtec. Um and so um, t uh, two of which I've owned, so it's interesting. And then, uh, but before I do that, I do something that for a while I was calling a rant, but I thought that seemed a little selfish. So now instead, as we're all looking at these stocks together, I've renamed that segment, it would help our portfolios if. So things that might be good for the stock market or sectors of the stock market, good for equity values, that sort of thing. So, um, in any case, uh, let's see, what am I missing here? Uh, check all the caveats, all the bios, etc. Uh, I think I have five years of shows up now at www.thevalueguys.com. And also, we're on iTunes as well. Last week, we had our highest ranking of all time on iTunes. I normally wouldn't talk about it, except I thought it was pretty cool. Number 21 for audio uh, investment podcasts. So given that I'm doing this in my laundry room right now at my house, uh, I think that's pretty cool. So anyway, let's get to it. Uh, let's move into the segment I like to call, It Would Help Our Portfolio If. And it would help our portfolio if we would not have price controls in healthcare. So uh, I was reading the paper the other day, and I noticed, so now the health care bill has passed for us. I've noticed that, I noticed that there was this uh, discussion about maybe we might have to put price controls on in order to keep the costs down. So remember, during the debate, there was some concern by some that costs wouldn't really be in check and that, you know, you were taxing people sooner than you were increasing benefits and, uh, uh, things like that. So, but now it turns out that no, we may have price controls. Now, the problem with that, I did go at length a few weeks ago uh, about a demand curve and a supply curve, supply and demand, and this whole healthcare debate. 
and I don't want to go on too much about it now, but because I'm, I, I want to get to the stocks, and I'm a little sleepy actually. But um, what happens is, if you're familiar with a supply and demand curve, if you're you know taking some economics along the way, you know that uh, your supply curve starts at the bottom left of your uh, graph and heads to the top right, and your demand curve makes a big X over that by starting in the top left and going to the bottom right. Your axes on the, along the left is your price and along the bottom is your quantity or quality. It can go either way depending on what you're talking about. Right now, I mean you can talk about either one. So uh, equilibrium in the market is right where supply meets demand. So at the middle of that X you draw a little dotted line down and where that hits your uh, x-axis that is the quantity or quality of the care and you take a little dotted line uh, directly over to the uh, y-axis and uh, or the you know the the vertical axis which is your price at that equilibrium okay so let's say that you put in um, price controls so what that would mean is whatever the natural price would be you'll in effect be lowering them or there would be no reason for those controls if the price were fine with everyone you wouldn't be controlling them so as soon as you control them uh, the way to uh, show it on this graph is that you are resisting an increase in pricing a natural increase in the market so I want to depict that in my imaginary uh, supply and demand curve here as a downward movement in the price now what happens and if you've drawn this out on paper it's probably better if you've done it in your mind like I'm doing this may absolutely make no sense obviously but uh, if you lower the price what happens is the natural supply of the good in this case health care overall starts to move from the you know middle down toward uh, it takes a sort of south westerly path and both price is coming down because you're pushing it down but also quality and or quantity is going down because it's heading to the left meantime when you bring pricing down of course it might not be a shock to anyone who's a consumer that when you bring down the price you'll want more of it I know that happens to me and uh, and so what happens in that case is you start moving down the demand curve uh, which is going from again that original that point that was equilibrium down toward the bottom right and that means that the price is lower which in this case is being forced lower and uh, there's more demand because uh, the Q which is quality or quantity moves up in this case I might say at lower prices I'm going to demand more quantity but if I don't need more quantity, again, lower prices, I might be demanding more quality. It can sort of be, you know, either or on something like that. Now, uh, those two lines I now bring down, if I take where the price, the new price, hits the supply curve, bring that straight down, you'll notice it's going to be to the left of the original equilibrium um, Q curve, or let's say quantity. So it's a little bit to the left and you'll notice that if you take where the price line now hits the demand curve and take it down to the uh, 
quantity line, it's a little bit greater than the quantity was under equilibrium. That gap is the shortage that will happen when you put price controls on. Now, let's say that you actually you, you want to reduce those prices. That's a social need, a social uh, you know interest, and I might agree with you on that. Uh, who wouldn't? But the way to do it isn't to force prices lower. It's to uh, you know incentivize increasing demand because again, in this simple supply-demand world, which, by the way, should be required reading for anyone in Congress, anyone who's anywhere near a budget or near a tax code, should just have to study, It take, really, it would take an hour, honestly, to study uh, the supply-demand curve, because it's right in front of you what's happening. So the goal, rather than force the price down, creating this gap in quantity or quality, again either way or both sadly you want to encourage a shift in the supply curve because again if you're following along rather than force prices straight down getting a decline in supply you want to push the supply curve in effect to the right where for every quantity offered by the producers the pricing they're willing to offer is now lower now, how would that happen? Well, it's been happening for about 5,000 years, uh, more quickly in the last few hundred since the Industrial Revolution came in. But uh, if you can uh, innovate, uh, so invent new stuff, create ways to reduce costs, so get more efficient with your existing stuff, or just work harder or smarter, then um, you're going to reduce costs for each point in the supply and that's going to be passing on the willingness to reduce price because again investors they just need the difference as a return on investment they don't need price they just need price minus cost so as innovation or invention or efficiency or hard work reduce costs um, competition uh, brings pricing down as well because it drives market share which drives return on capital um, now the problem with that is the things that are going on in terms of price controls don't incentivize any of the things you need to move the supply curve out there. You hurt innovation because you're taxing it. You're taxing. You're raising the taxes on, I believe, medical products, which is reducing the incentive to innovate. Um, you're going to put an actual price cap on suppliers. Could be doctors or hospitals per diems. That will reduce their incentive to. Uh, in the case of labor work in the case of hospitals the the first thing they'll do is you know reduce maintenance and things things that you might not notice but that you'd hope they'd be doing it just creates incentives that are counter to that of the patient as they struggle in a price controlled environment to continue to get profits um, there won't be incentives to um, uh, I think for, for new people to come into the market in terms of suppliers uh, so you get worried about how many new college students will be choosing to be in the field so you're also hurting the supply curve out in the future when that next generation of providers comes out to uh, to serve the rest of us and yet demographics are pretty clear in terms of what the needs will be for medical services going out you know 20 30 years and so 
Um, I think that my main point in my uh, conversation here about it would help my portfolio if is if you have price controls, you're actually going to create incentives to shrink the supply of health care, creating a gap between demand and supply, and that's bad for stocks in that industry. And I own uh, some health care stocks, and so it would be good for my portfolio if we don't do that, uh, which is the price controls. Gas lines in the 70s, anyone remember that? That was the that was the last widespread use of price controls, and there's a lot of photography about that. So uh, you don't want to see those same lines, you know, in the waiting room for surgery. This would just be my point. So, um, okay, let's get on to the um, uh, more objective part of the show. Uh, although it's still obviously subjective when you're picking stocks, I'm going to take a little. Um, beverage break here uh, with myself. There's I'm toasting to to May, I guess. I had a really terrific May day this year, and um, <clears throat> kind of decided in my family to start celebrating May Day, make it kind of a ritual, and do special things. You know, I don't know. It's just it's just evolving as a concept right now. Um, okay, first up this week, a company uh, I've done many times before, Wabtech, ticker WAB, page 1749. As always, uh, the first thing I'm attracted to here is the valuation. In this case, it's not that great. So, uh, of course, that's a reason in and of itself to keep looking because, um, you know, you miss things if you just focus on that. Um, then I'm looking at return on capital. Well, that's actually been dropping. So, again, why would I keep looking at that? The yield isn't that good uh, here either. Um, so, why am, I, why am I interested in this? Well, first of all, I own it. So, I have to be honest. Um, it makes it easier for me to do the show without having to find a new stock. I had two stocks. I did look through the issue, but... I'm a week behind in the show, and so um, I did look through uh, all the stocks in this week's issue, in both weeks. I'm actually doing the show, but I'm going to do two back-to-back if I can stomach it. So keep listening, and you'll hear the same groggy Val doing the next show, uh, hopefully. Um, but um, Wabtech, one of the things I like it is like about it is there's this big-picture trend going on where rail terms of the market share they have of traffic, freight traffic, is gaining share in America for the first time since the truck really was invented. And that's because the combination of fuel prices rising and uh, trains in terms of fuel use per freight ton mile are lower. Um, in big part, it's because of labor, uh, you know, number of man hours or woman hours per ton of freight, as you can imagine, just because of the capacity of trains is much lower. And then the efficiency of the equipment itself, it's longer lasting, wear and tear is less. Um, and, uh, you know, so fuel, big part, more efficient. Fuel and labor, really, that's, that's your thing. And your capital investment, you have to make in rail, you don't in truck because the state, the government is 
making that investment of the federal government. Um, but um, because of the advantage in fuel, capital investment is going into rail for the first time, really, since the trucks started gaining share, and that's a long, long time ago. So I like that long underlying trend as security in an uncertain market. So what's happening is because of that, Wabtec, they provide brakes to the rail industry, and that's about half their business. And then the other half is that they provide um, trains uh, and buses to subways, you know, metropolitan transportation systems around the country and around the world. And that's growing as, uh, as government gets larger, um, social services, transportation is on that list. And so they have a nice backlog in that area, and they've been gaining share. So while their return on capital isn't as high as I'd like it to be, some of that reduction is in part due to, uh, well, certainly their willingness to compete because um, as you get business growing, there's new entrants in markets, and so you need to defend those. But also, I think as their business has grown into metropolitan transportation, subways, particular buses, you've got to compete pretty hard in the early years, uh, and this is what I'm guessing a little bit, and that you know your profits come down the road as you get more efficient in your manufacturing processes and things like that. So um, I expect that to get better, and in fact, Value Line is showing a turn on that um, next year. Their return on equity is in the mid-teens. That's respectable. And their operating margin, while their returns on capital have been going down, uh, their operating margins have been going up. And so, you know, that's also a, a sign that perhaps they're simply investing in additional capacity and um, they are, uh, you know, heavily depreciating that in the early years. I know that the operating margin in value line is um, before depreciation, so um, that could account for that. And I do see, see their depreciation line um, rising. So um, what I like is wind at their back in terms of the industry. They'll be a provider uh, to all uh, competitors in rail, and they've got, you know, a meaningful share in a lot of urban areas around the country. Their valuation, you know, doesn't look that great on a PE basis, but um, on an enterprise value to EBITDA, they're about seven and a half times, which is, um, you know, what, about um, 12 and a half, 13%. Uh, in terms of a cash-on-cash cash return, and then growth, according to value line, might be as high as 10%. So I'm looking at something in the low 20s, uh, 20% on a total return basis. Um, value line talks about, uh, let's see, um, business down sharply. You know, that's still stemming from that big decline in industrial production in the last half of 08. Um the transit business is holding up well. You know, again, that's a reason to, to like this is that you'll have stability in that area. Once you begin to gain share, it's, you're very difficult to displace. Um, there have been declines in transportation ridership that will come back and help maintenance cycles and things like that. So that's yet to come. And, uh, you know, company's in pretty good financial shape. Balance sheet, 30% debt to cap. You know, what have you. Webtech, WAB, page 1749. Next up, um, National Presto, 
ticker NPK. I, uh, I have talked about this before. This is page 1772. My theme on this, because my theme on WebTech, did I say uh, industry share and, uh, and they're a leader, and then Metro Transit gaining share? I like to have themes. It's good to know why you own a stock, definitely. If you don't know why, then don't own it. Simple as that. If you can't figure out why you own it, um, then pass. There's a lot of other stocks. Uh, National Presto. Again, I, on this one, I get attracted to the valuation. It's 11 times earnings. I got to take a look at that. And then I'm seeing a dividend yield of 7%, which just is way too high and screams that, uh, you know, the market expects something <laughs> bad to happen to the dividend almost. Uh, and, you know, I don't know. Maybe it will. Who knows? Um, but here's the story. Well, the other the other spooky thing on this one is value line rates at a one, and I like it. Also, I will note the stock is at 112 according to value line. It was as low as 41 last year. I think on the value guys, we've been talking about this as a buy for quite a long time. So I'm not just coming to it, but I still like it here, and uh, in part the valuation. But also, I mean, they've been putting up great returns on capital at 10%, you know, five years ago, now 20% on capital, and they have no debt. Um, so, you know, it seems like the market expects something to go wrong here, and, you know, maybe something will. I have no idea. But National Presto, this is the company that used to just make pots and pans, small housewares, small appliances and housewares. Now that's just 30% of their business. The, half their business now, so this is the big growth that uh, has sent their sales from, you know, 200 million five years ago to 580 million projected for next year. That's a lot of growth. It appears to be coming from defense products, which is they produce uh, precision and electromechanical assemblies, medium caliber cartridge cases. Then it says, etc., as if I would have any idea what that would be, etc. Okay. So um, you read a little further, and um, you know Presto bought uh, a company Amtech, which is like probably a pure play in ammunition a few years ago, and now it's one of their divisions. But their role here is to provide, um, let's see, all of the requirements for the 40 millimeter family of practice and tactical ammunition rounds. It doesn't say if that's for the. Uh, uh, let's see. It's the Army, U.S. Army. So um, now maybe the uh, market thinks that the need for practice ammunition is going to plummet uh, when the hostilities in the Mideast end, and that very well could be. You know, I don't, I don't know. I can't really speak to that. Um, it would definitely require some, some work. But right now it's five times EBITDA. That means if we put down $100 to own the company, all the stock, and all the debt, which they have none. So we would get all the cash flow here, which by my calculation um, would be a 20% return on the cash we just paid to own uh, the company. Now that's pre-tax. So maybe if we actually had the money to buy this and it would take about $800 million, um, then... 
you know, presumably that, uh, what, that's $160 million or whatever we would earn on a pre-tax basis. Um, you know, we'd, we'd have losses somewhere else to offset that, you know. But if not, then, of course, you got to look at an after-tax uh, yield. But still, 20%, that's pretty good. And then you're going to get some growth. Value line says 10%. That's well below the last 10 years. So, again, even built into those assumptions is that business goes, you know, you just aren't going to keep growing at that pace. Once you've established that business, you're pretty well in it. And you're not going to, you know, reestablish it. You'd have to go somewhere else to do that. So maybe that's realistic. But that gives me a total of a 30% return in sort of a back-of-the-envelope basis, you know, uh, cash-on-cash yield plus growth. That gives me plenty of room uh, in case a business falls off. And if it does fall off, I'm likely to keep some of that defense business. Maybe I lose half. Um, The appliance business isn't going anywhere, so I still have that. And then the other business that seems to be growing here, 15% of their business right now, is private label diapers and adult incontinence, which... um, you know, who knows where they get the economies of scale to create those sorts of products. My understanding historically is that it takes a big factory to do that. Um, and if you're private label, you know, you're competing with a branded company that's selling private label out the back door at incremental cost. And here, I'm not seeing a brand. So who knows how what that is. I haven't read anything here about the value line. But I like the valuation. And, uh, you know, the Army, it seems like a decent bet. Uh, I hate to say it, but, you know, you're probably, when these wars kind of peter out, you're apt to get some other wars that need ammunition as well. So um, I like this one, National Presto, page 1772. And so let's see, finally, this week, the week of April 23rd, 2010, even though it's actually May 2nd, Hillenbrand, page H, uh, page 1830, ticker HI. Now, Value Line doesn't actually rate this this week, and they say the reason is is that it's too new. Well, okay, but it's a 100-year-old company, I think, and I'll just read you what they even say here. Hillenbrand, formerly known as Batesville Holdings, was spun out of Hillrom Holdings, which was formerly known as Hillenbrand Industries. So you had Hillenbrand Industries, and uh, they had a subsidiary called Batesville Holdings. They um, they spun that. They also had a, a, a hospital bed business, Hillrom, which I believe does now trade independently under the name Hillrom. And so they sort of spun this out and spun it back and renamed it back to Hillenbrand because the bed business was named Hill Rom, which I think Hill for Hillenbrand and Rom, I don't know what it is, what Rom would mean in the bed world. Maybe that means something, but I don't know. Uh, but anyway, Hillenbrand was the family, and you may still have a Hillenbrand, and yep, you still have a Hillenbrand in charge, Ray Hillenbrand. And these guys have a giant market share in the casket industry. And, uh, and so they're tied into this uh, very stable death rate. And, uh, and they had, uh, you know, very serious market share in caskets. So they have great returns on capital. People aren't price shopping historically. 
although that was an issue a few years ago. Um, and then you had the issue where uh, cremations were gaining share of uh, death care. So, you know, they now have a bunch of stuff for cremations, and um, they may own some funeral homes. I actually don't think they do. No, I won't say that. Um, you know, that's primarily what they do. Uh, then they, they have a, another company that they bought actually just a month ago called Katron, and uh, that's in a completely different business, industrial feeders and pneumatic conveyors. So they clearly see that uh, caskets is not a growth business, but it's certainly a stable business. It throws off tremendous cash flow. I may have said this already, but they're earning upper 20s percent return on capital. They have no debt. They've got margins in the mid-upper 20%. It's a great business. And uh, they're priced right now at seven times EBITDA, which means if we bought the whole company, stock and debt, which there's no debt, um, we would receive the earnings before interest, taxes, and depreciation as cash flow to us. And I look at that as a yield. So that would be 1 over 7, which is 14% if I'm doing the math approximately right. Um, now, granted, I'm going to have to reinvest some of that cash into working capital, so inventories, receivables perhaps, offset somewhat by payables growing as well. But I'm also going to have to pop some of that money into capital spending to maintain my plant or, uh, uh, or you know, maybe expand capacity. So, you know you may not get all that cash directly. The reason I don't subtract out capital spending typically from my calculation for a yield is simply because I think that that spend is most likely a positive uh, present value event. That unless the people choosing to spend the money are complete idiots, which they sometimes are. You know, if you see declining returns on capital over time, then yeah, they're going to be destroying the value of that capital spending. But if you see um, that that got a high and stable or improving return on uh, assets, then, you know, that next dollar of capital spending is being well spent. And so I get confidence that it has a positive present value. I don't want to dis deduct it from uh, my sense of the, the yield that I'm getting. Although some might argue it the other way, and that's fine. There's room for debate. And then on top of that, I add the growth rate into my potential for total return simply because the growth rate would reflect the growth in the underlying value uh, in the company each year, assuming that the you know the required yield from the buyer stayed stable and the risk same stable and all that. Anyway, um, did I cover enough here? I mean, it's uh, it's got a little bit of a yield, three percent. It's very stable, and uh, in the case of a total return calculation on this one, I've got. A seven times EBITDA, as I said, I think that's where I maybe lost my place. 14% would be the inverse of that, and then I'm going to add what ValueLine is estimating is an 8% growth rate. That gives me a 22% type of uh, total return, and that's pretty good. Again, in a world where the bank's paying me, what, almost nothing, and uh, treasuries aren't paying me much, then, you know, these are pretty good returns, and even though it's obviously only really available if we really did buy the whole company, which we're not going to do. Uh, the notion that that could happen keeps the market pretty honest, and once in a while it gets in sync with that actual value, and just be alert to that and sell it at that point would be my thought. 
Anyway, that's the end of this week's show. I'm going to pick a favorite. And um, I think it's going to have to be... It's going to be counterintuitive because National Presto really looks interesting here. But I don't know enough about what could happen to that defense business. It says they just did sign a contract, so... Uh, maybe that'll be great. On the other hand, maybe they signed it and they earned no money. I don't know. So because of that, uh, and because of the ascension of rail uh, and Wabtec's leading position in it, I'm going to uh, pick Wabtec as my favorite this week. Ticker WAB, page 1749. That's this week's show, everybody. Thanks for listening in. This has been the Value Line Observer with Val Hughes of the Value Guys. Check all our caveats and all of our information at www.thevalueguys.com. Have a good day, everybody.